0: Hello. In today's episode, I want to talk a little bit about history, a little bit of turfgrass history with a very interesting experiment, the park grass experiment, and talk about that a little bit for people who may not have heard of that because this is an experiment that has a su- very, very surprising result. and. I did a blog post about this. I wrote a blog post about this recently that has the title, Park Grass Photos. And what this blog post is about is photos that were shared, that were taken in May of 2022. The photos were taken of every single subplot from the Park Grass Experiment in the spring of 2022 Prior to the first cut of that experiment. Now, I think that this is worth checking out, and I will explain what this experiment is about and why I think it's worth checking out. But first, I will let you know that in this ATC double cut episode, in show notes, or in the description uh, of this episode, I will share three links. I will share the link to this direct, uh, the direct link to this blog post that is titled park grass photos. And then I will share a link to an interactive photo gallery by Sarah Perryman and Natalie Castells Brook. And they put together this photo gallery that shows the park grass subplots in May of 2022. So I will put a direct link to that. And I hope that after watching this or listening to this, you will be intrigued enough that you will want to check it out. And see what you can find there in that interactive photo gallery. And then I will also share a link, a direct link to an article that I wrote with Frank Rossi about the Parkgrass experiment and we called it uh, the fight against dogma. And by the end of this episode, I hope you will understand why we called that the fight against dogma in the title. So the Parkgrass Experiment, for those who have not heard of it, is an experiment that was started in 1856. That is 166 years ago, and it's, it's on what was originally a hay meadow, a hay meadow north of London at the Rothamsted Estate in Hertfordshire. That's a little bit north of London and it is on the Rothamsted Research Station, which was formerly the estate of John Bennett Laws. John Bennett Laws became wealthy because he had a patent on the manufacture of superphosphate fertilizer. He was in the fertilizer business in the 19th century, in the Victorian era in England, and he became wealthy. And he was very interested in fertilizer experiments. He was very interested in agricultural research. And so he turned his farm, his estate, into a research station, basically. And he employed a chemist, uh, Joseph Henry Gilbert, I believe his name was, Yes, it was John Bennett Laws who had the Rothamsted estate and Joseph Henry Gilbert was a chemist he employed and they did a lot of really interesting experiments and some of these experiments were so interesting and so impactful that they've continued to the present day and these are termed the long-term experiments or the LTE Um And If you go to the Rothamsted website, I think they have an entire section devoted just to these experiments. And the one that I find the most interesting is the park grass experiment because it has a lot of things that are related to turf grass. Now you might be thinking, and rightly so, you might be thinking, what does an experiment on a hay meadow have to do anything with turf grass management? Well, I would like to explain. Because when this experiment was started back in 1856, and that was a long time ago, right? That's 166 years ago. It's before the Civil War in the United States. It's before Charles Darwin published his famous book, On the Origin of Species. This Experiment was started a long time ago, and the experiment was designed to test the effects of different fertilizers on hay yield and on the quality of hay to be fed to animals. Because back then there were not tractors, so hay was the fuel of the day, and rather than tractors, it was draft animals or horses that were used to plow the fields, to harvest the crops, and, and uh, do a lot of transportation, and so on. So hay was quite important, and they wanted to find out what would happen if they applied different fertilizers to this hay meadow and see what the effect would be on the hay yield. But something very surprising happened right at the start of the experiment, Within the first couple of years, within the first couple of years after applying the treatments, and these treatments ranged from nothing up uh, and then it included ammonium sulfate, sodium nitrate, various magnesium and potassium and phosphorus sources, a range of fertilizers that you can find at the um At the link to that interactive photo gallery that I will put, you can also get access to the entire treatment plan. So you can see all the treatments that are applied, the elements that are applied to the different fertilizer plots. So they started in 1856, they started applying the different fertilizers to different plots, and they've continued up to the present day doing that but i think the reason they are the the reason why this experiment has been continued it doesn't have so much to do with hay yield because what they saw was that it looked like after they put the different fertilizers on this hay meadow that started off with i think it was somewhere between 40 to 50 different species growing on it so it, it was a hay meadow with all kinds of different species, some grasses, some not grasses. But what they observed, and what um, John Bennett Laws and John Henry, Joseph Henry Gilbert, what they wrote about in one of the first articles that they wrote about this experiment with uh, describing the results on the botanical composition of the plots, they wrote that. The experimental ground, I'm quoting here from that article that they wrote in 1860, they wrote that the experimental ground looked almost as much as if it were devoted to trials with different seeds as with different manures or fertilizers. By manures, in the language of the day, they mean fertilizer. Let me let me say that again because i think it's really profound the experimental ground looked almost as much as if it were devoted to trials with different seeds as with different fertilizers so they found as soon as they took this hay meadow and they put different fertilizers on it different plants grew or or some grant gra- some plants proliferated with one type of fertilizer treatment and other plants did not grow so well one plant was dominant or um, different plants were dominant in different plots now this is fascinating to me because it well i guess just reading about it, it it's not quite so fascinating maybe it's interesting to me, or fascinating that the experiment is that old. But it wasn't until I saw it with my own eyes and saw how different the grasses are or how different the weed pressure is. I'm I'm speaking about this from a turf grass perspective. So I'm thinking of this as golf course turf, sports turf, lawn turf, that type of turf where generally we would prefer grasses. And generally we would prefer finer grasses rather than coarser grasses. So I don't really want Holcus lanatus or Yorkshire fog. Now there's a lot of that on some of the plots at the park grass experiment. But there are other plots that have absolutely no Holcus Hul- lanatus. There are some plots that are dominated by sweet vernal grass, by fine fescue, and by common bentgrass, or colonial bentgrass, brown top bentgrass, as it's called. There are other plots that have a lot of dandelions. Some plots are absent. They have no dandelions whatsoever. And some plots have the original amount of species, something like 45 different species growing on the plot, just like something similar to what a hay meadow in the mid-19th century would have been in that part of England. And then other plots are down to just a few species. Sometimes they're down to just a few species of grasses. So you think, okay, from a lawn management perspective or a golf course fairway or golf course rough or golf course putting green management perspective, wouldn't it be nice to have a 80 or 90% reduction in weed pressure if we could just choose the right fertilizers. Or perhaps it's about avoiding the products that are going to lead to conditions that allow all of those weeds to grow. There's something that is applied that allows the dandelion to grow or that allows the clover to grow. And so this is something that is worthy of study. And when you see it for yourself and stand on the plots and see the striking difference, as you stand on one plot and you move one meter away or one move three feet away into another plot with different soil chemistry and different fertilizer supplied and see the species composition is completely different. When you see that, it... Well, at least when I saw that, I was like, wow, the fertilizer we apply really, really matters. So I'm going to encourage you to check out this interactive photo gallery, because I've been to the Parkgrast experiment many times since I think the first time I went there was 2004 or 2005. And I've been back, I think, maybe I've been there in total five to 10 times. And I've been there at different seasons of the year. I've been there in the middle of winter, and I've been there in June. Um, I've been there in May. I've been there in July. I don't know that I've been there in the autumn, but uh, definitely I've been there in winter, and I've been there in summer, and I've been there in spring. And it's really really interesting to see with my own eyes, but I never went and took a picture of every single plot and I wasn't ever there. Well, I didn't, I didn't think to take a picture of every single plot and every single subplot. And I was so excited to see that Sarah Perryman and Natalie Castells Brook had put together an interactive photo gallery. And there's a direct link to this in the notes and it shows each of the park grass subplots in May of 2022 and then this is before the plots are harvested for hay and this year that happened on June 15th i believe so what it is in May is unmowed plants that are grown up and in flower if they were flowering so when they're in flower it's easy to see some of the different some of the species differences and to identify by the flowers, just in a photo, some of the species diversity or the lack of species diversity that is present in some of those plots. Now, I looked at this interactive photo gallery, both on my phone and on my computer, and I found it looked better on my computer. Um, it was easier for me to see what was going on by looking at this on my laptop screen. So I think the larger the screen the batter this may even be good you can uh, look at this on a big screen television so there's a direct link to that and uh, I hope you'll check it out because you can see it it gives you an idea to see wow you put lime you know you can have this this turf well I call it turf it's a hay meadow <laughs> but some of these look surprisingly like a nice lawn, like like the type of lawn that I'd like to have. If I would just mow it a little bit more frequently than this hay meadow is mown, and if perhaps uh, maybe I rolled it a little bit or something, some of the maintenance techniques that can be used to produce fine turf, um, some of these plots look like, wow, I, I could work with that if I just had turf grass maintenance equipment instead of hay harvesting equipment. If I mowed this 20 times a year instead of harvesting it for hay once or twice a year. But then you look and, and say, wow, you take that soil and you lime that particular fertilizer treatment to a pH of seven. And all of a sudden, it's like you can't see grass anymore because there's so many, so many broadleaf plants, so many, so many plants that are not grasses. And you can also look at some of the plots that get nitrogen only, and you think, "Hmm, that looks pretty good." And then you, then you see the plot that gets nitrogen plus phosphorus and potassium, and you think, "Whoa, there's there's more just pure grass growing in the nitrogen only plot, and you get a lot of other things from a turf grass manager from a turf grass." Manager's perspective. I think we could call those undesirable things. We will see those in the plots that get elements other than nitrogen. So it's interesting. I I hope everybody that is intrigued about this will someday have a chance to go there in person. But the next best thing, um, other than watching some of the videos that uh, that you can find about park grass. On uh, that are that are published by by Rothamsted, this interactive photo gallery is really good because it it shows all of the plots, all of the subplots. It says what the fertilizer treatment was, what the pH is that it's lime to, and how many species are growing on the plot. So it will give you an idea. Now I I mentioned that Frank Rossi and I have written an article about this uh, called "The Fight Against Dogma," and In that, we describe some of the key results from this experiment. I'll talk about the dogma a little bit later, but now let me share my screen. For those of you watching, I'm going to share something, share a different screen. And I'm going to share that article and read something that one of my turfgrass heroes, Charles Vancouver Piper, wrote about this experiment. Um, Let's see. Now, if you don't know who Charles Vancouver Piper is, he was the first chairman or director of the USGA Green Section. And Charles Vancouver Piper wrote the very famous book, the Piper and Oakley book called... Turf for Golf Courses, which was published in 1917. And then, I believe the USGA Green Section was started in 1921, and Piper lived for a few more years, and he was very active in the work that he did with the Green Section. He was employed by the United States Department of Agriculture, and he was the world's leading Agrostologist or turfgrass scientist at that time. I, um, I'm going to read to you what he wrote about this, and I think, I think it's uh, <laughs> it, it just blows my mind how long this experiment has been happening. <laughs> it uh, let's see. So in 1924. Um, Charles Vancouver Piper, the first chairman of the USGA Green Section. He wrote in the Bulletin of the Green Section of the USGA about the Rothamsted Experiment Station and the Grass Experiment. All right, I'll, um, I'll quote from him. At the Rothamsted Experiment Station near London, England, An extensive series of experiments in the fertilizing of grasslands has been carried on continuously for nearly 70 years, that is, since 1856. Micah interjecting here to say that... (laughs) I was laughing earlier and I'm laughing now because I think it's just amazing that when Piper went there a hundred years ago, almost a hundred years ago, the he was writing about the experiments had been already uh, ongoing for nearly seventy years. At that time, the experiment had been going on um, for longer than Piper had even been alive. So uh, I'm going to go back now uh, to the uh, to what he had to say about it. Specifically, the tests are on a clay loam soil and the results are measured in hay yields. While the maintenance of grassland for hay crops is not the same thing as its upkeep for producing turf, nevertheless, the Rothamsted work is not without bearing on greenkeeping. It must be borne in mind that the results of parallel experiments in fertilizing differ with the soil and with the climate. Also, that the effect of fertilizers on such hay grasses as timothy and orchard grass does not directly concern golf courses. It is also to be remembered that there are many English plants that do not occur in America and vice versa. Naturally, the behavior of such plants cannot be compared for the two countries. But with those limitations borne in mind, the Rothamsted results nevertheless carry lessons of high importance in the growing of golf turf the results correlate so closely with experiments in this country that they must be regarded as highly significant. So Piper explained all of the reasons why we should be cautious about trying to make a direct transfer of information from an experiment like the Parkgrass experiment to what we do with golf course turf, because um there's different plants it's a certain type of soil it's a certain english climate and so on and it's hay yield and not green keeping but he 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 said that with those limitations born in mind keep keep those limitations in mind then the rothamstead results nevertheless carry lessons of high importance in the growing of golf turf the results correlate so closely with experiments in this country, by that he means in the United States, that they must be regarded as highly significant. So Piper thought in, when he wrote this in 1924 that this was something that is highly significant to, um, to greenkeeping and to greenkeepers in the United States and um i'll bring up the blog post again and i think so too and frank rossi and i thought so too when we wrote that article and um i guess i can mention some of the dogma part now (laughs) so the what what you see in the park grass experiment is that nitrogen application reduces species diversity meaning if you put nitrogen, fewer plant species will grow, which might be a bad thing for an ecologist, but for a turfgrass manager, that's generally a good thing because we would rather have fewer species so long as it is our desired species that are composed within that set of fewer species that are growing. So nitrogen application reduces species diversity Nitrogen application also favors the growth of grasses over other types of plants. So, adding nitrogen reduces what turf managers would consider weeds. And Frank and I also wrote, and I'll quote here, another striking ecological observation is that adding lime, that would be calcium carbonate, phosphorus, or potassium will increase the abundance of non-grass species when you think about many of the general recommendations for turf grass and i know you will have heard a lot of these in fact i was watching a webinar this morning where i heard a lot of these about trying to keep the soil ph neutral in this you know in this case they wanted the ph between six and seven. I've written blog posts about that saying that is not something that you need to be concerned about. But in textbooks and in the usual seminars, we'll hear something like you want to keep the soil pH neutral or close to seven by adding lime. You want to apply complete fertilizers to make sure you know people talk about nutrient availability and you know making sure that you've got enough calcium and enough magnesium and enough phosphorus and enough potassium and a lot of that is dogma and when you look at something like the park grass experiment and you see the you see the plots of grassland that do receive lime to be uh, to reach a pH of 6 or 7 and they are supplied with nitrogen, and phosphorus, and potassium, and calcium, and magnesium. And you look at that, and that is not something that we would ever want to manage as turf grass because it is full of broadleaf plants and coarse grasses. But if you look at some some of the best plots there, generally from a turf grass perspective, um, the actually the meadow that gets nothing is pretty nice if you would just mow it and roll it. But even better than that is the plot that gets just ammonium sulfate. And it's gotten ammonium sulfate for 166 years. And it hasn't gotten limed. So it's extremely acid. And it's not perfect, but it doesn't have any broadleaf plants growing in it. And the grasses that are growing are primarily sweet vernal grass and also colonial Bank grass or or common bank grass, brown top bank grass. I think there may be a little bit of fine fescue in there as well. If there's not fine fescue in there, the grasses that are growing and there's only I think six species growing in that plot. the the uh, the grasses that are growing there because of the acid nature of the soil because the uh, the soil has not been supplied with a lot of those other nutrients they have a very thin leaf blade and it it's the type of thing that that could be a lawn or it could be a golf course rough and it's it's quite suitable and it's herbicide free so i think when we when we consider the results of the park grass experiment and every turf grass manager around the world should be aware of this so if this is the first time you're hearing about it that's great but now you're aware of it and i would encourage you to think about it when you're applying fertilizers or when you're applying lime and just think, is, is this being done because of dogma? Am I applying these products because, um, yeah, I, I don't know. just just because that's what the textbook says, or is there really is is this really going to accomplish what I need to accomplish? So the this is where it gets a little bit tricky because we are dealing with this uh, the plants that are growing north of London, in that soil, in that climate, and in a hay meadow. But um, this encourages me to study more about the specific species that are growing in different plots and try to extend this argument a little bit more because I know that if I were growing turf grass myself um, and and uh, deciding what fertilizers to apply, I would definitely be going on the acid side if I could. I, I would not be by, be putting lime to... Try to reach a pH of six or seven. For one, um, I I would not be adding phosphorus or potassium in levels that are very high if I was adding them at all. And I think everybody knows that I like to use the MLSN guidelines. That method of interpreting soil tests, which uh, which tends to be on the low side. Um, if the soil already has a lot of those nutrients, then just let the grass use them up. And that's kind of what's happened at the Park grass experiment, except it's happened over 166 years, and it's gone much beyond what uh, what MLSN would be. Although on a clay loam soil, those soils uh, do have quite a bit of uh, of of nutrients compared to a sand root zone. So um, that is something that also, um, I could take a further look at. Anyway, if you if you have any questions about this, uh, let me know. And uh, or if you want, I don't know, I am there's information there out there about the park grass experiment, I will try to share another video. Um, I think it was who, who did that? I'm not going to name names cause I might misspeak. Uh, but I'm, there's another video about the park grass experiment that I will throw into the notes also so that anybody can watch that because the park grass experiment is really cool. And so it's, it's just amazing because some of the plots look like, uh, it's like weeds that are as tall as I am. And, uh, And that's just from fertilizer. And then you can walk 50 meters away and you can find another plot that has grass that is about uh, two inches, three inches tall. And, And it looks like a perfect lawn or, well, it's not perfect, but it looks like what could be a perfect lawn if you would just run a mower across it because it's it's already the right plants and it's, it's basically at the right height. So that, to me, is something that is really cool. And I am so grateful to the people at Rothamsted who realize that there's people all around the world who are interested in this type of experiment and who have gone to the trouble to put together this interactive photo gallery so you can see that i hope you will and uh, i will be back again soon with another episode of the atc double cut thank you all so much for listening i will sign off now for atc from olga washington i am michael woods